said, look awake. You could be replaced by a button. And she was talking about it because she collected buttons, but that's beside the point. You could, if you can be replaced by a button, your job is in danger. And that's something to consider is to consider if you're doing something that's boring and repetitive, eventually a computer will come along to do your job. If you're doing something that requires thinking and innovation, computers don't do that very well. Matter of fact, they do that terribly. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, presumably, maybe, probably not, presumably, yeah, Pouldn't, shouldn't presume that. Welcome back to another, maybe not presumably, exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, where we'll talk about such in- exciting and inspiring subjects as in- inflation, employment and things like that and we've got a lot of other stuff to talk i actually want to spend some time on that subject but we have two questions that are hanging out there that are both fantastically good ones Uh, the first one is from john our most loyal questioner and listener presuming that he actually listens he might just email us questions and then not and not wait for the answer i actually think he knows the answer to most of the questions that he sends. So he should be an attorney. Okay. So uh, (laughs) John's first question, subject line, student debt. I understand that private lenders stopped making student loans several years ago, leaving Uncle Sam as the sole provider. Biden is hinting that, that he will cancel all or part of outstanding student debt with an executive order. Can he do that? Okay. So there's some misconceptions in here, and he may know this, and that may be why he's doing it. there are still private loans out there that are still being issued for student loans. Uh, They're both being issued in the primary market and the secondary market. What's that? A primary would be you're a student, you're at the campus, and you say, I need a loan. Private loans are still there. They have some different regulations than they used to. Uh, And still by far, the largest lender is the United States government. In the secondary market, that's when you're refinancing your student loans. There are federal and private refinancers for that as well. The regulations on student loans still apply. The things like whether or not you can stop making your payment only apply to federal student loans. Okay, so let's move on to the next one because... Regardless of whether or not private lending is available, it is such a small percentage of the marketplace and has been a small percentage of the marketplace that it's not a major player. Uh, Biden's hinting that he will cancel all or part of outstanding student debt with an executive order. No, he can't do it. I mean, he could write the executive order, but he couldn't do it. And why not? Well, because this falls directly under Congress's purview. Uh, the executive branch has some leeway to forgive certain types of loans for certain circumstances, but only the leeway that Congress has given them. In order to actually forgive the debt that's held by the U.S. government against many, many U.S. citizens that have gone to college, Congress would have to act. There are exceptions. Congress has already acted in certain areas like people that work for -for not-for-profits or governmental agencies that fall within certain categories for a 10-year period without missing any payments uh, have forgiveness. 
So a lot of times you'll hear about this with teachers, but it's true with firefighters and people that work for not-for-profits. Um, the difficulty is actually getting it forgiven because there's a backlog of these applications. And a lot of times people send in the application and by the t- time the application is approved, they've already paid off their student loan on their own. So just keep that as a side note. How we forgive student loans is another thing. So for example, you can do an executive order as the president to forgive student loans to a a university that was in some form of malpractice. And Congress already gave that purview to the president. So if there's a a for-profit university that has a bunch of public student loans on it and it's proven in court or shown with a strong amount of evidence in court that it was sort of a scam that you really couldn't get a job with any of the designations, credentials, or degrees from that university then the federal government quite often will forgive those loans. That doesn't mean it's a total loss to the government. The government then tends to turn around and go after the university or educational institute to see if it can recover some of that. And there's, there's, a, there's a point to that, by the way. The fact that the United States government makes student loans indicates that they, in essence, are approving of the education system offered by that university. They're only supposed to make... a loans to accredited universities and schools and sometimes they don't they just make loans because you apply for the loan right there is a fantastic article on this in uh in the wall street journal this week john i know you get the wall street journal and uh the the headline is our lord profited when college tuition rose he's paying for it now um and it's uh the former ceo of sally may who's now paying for his grandkids going to college and the average cost at public universities for a four-year tuition is $200,000. And yes, you heard that right. That's just a normal public school education. This isn't a private education. It can easily it's per year. ease. No, not per year. That's the total okay. per, per year. Uh, it's, it, it's anywhere from 28 to $50,000 across the United States. Uh, for a year of tuition, and you multiply that times times four, and you can see where it gets up to two hundred thousand very quickly. Um, if you're going to a private institution, that very quickly goes up, and the top end of that is in the millions of dollars for four years. Twenty years ago, when doing financial planning, we estimated that it would cost twenty thousand dollars a year to go to the University of Texas, and that's not even vaguely correct today. Yeah, it's it's up by fifty percent from that. And, and that's just, that's just phenomenally large. And when you think, you know, there's a lot of people that re- recall going to a public institution when it was still really seriously considered a public institution and you paid $100 for your semester. Well, that's not the case and hasn't been the case for a long time. Our educational system has gone from a uh, well-understood not competitive against each other set of institutions designed to keep prices low to everyone can afford it while they're going because of student loans. They may not be able to afford it in the future. So let me give you some behavior. Why, why is this? Why am I coming at it this way? When you're setting a price uh, at a restaurant, at a, a store, you're selling something. So you're selling a sandwich at a restaurant and you raise the price. If someone has to pay for it right there and the price goes up too much, they say, I'm not going to buy $20 half sandwich 
that's that's unreasonable. There's this is not being made by a French chef in the back. This is somebody sitting in front of me with a plastic gloves on their hands. I'm not going to pay 20 bucks for a sandwich. However, if they don't really understand what the price is today, if they're on some kind of a plan where somebody else is paying for that and they have to pay the someone else back and they go to the counter and they get the same sandwich that they got last year and that their friends got last year and they just buy it, they go. Raising the price doesn't stop people from buying it. Now, when they come back and they say, I didn't know the price got up this high. How am I, how am I supposed to afford this? This is more than my rent payment paying for these sandwiches. I know I'm stretching the analogy, but bear with me. The sandwiches are what I'm sticking with. You could be talking about the medical system too. I, exactly. And that's where I was, I was going to combine this. The government has gotten involved by providing basically loans to anyone for anything when it comes to education. It's, it's vitally important that we educate our populace. I mean, it's a fantastic investment in our people to educate them. But without checks and balances, what it's done is it allows the colleges to raise their rates however well they want. There's no, there's no downward pressure from the marketplace because the marketplace isn't really what's making the decision. They can pay for it. It's just five years from now when they have to start making their payments and they realize how expensive it actually was based on income or not income that they have at the time that they're making the payment. So this is the same in in healthcare in that no one, if you have trauma and it's life-threatening or just really threatening and you go to a trauma center, it's a not-for-profit trauma center, which gives them tax incentives to, they don't have to pay taxes the way a for-profit institute would. They can't turn you away. They've got to treat you. It doesn't matter if you can pay. And that causes prices to go up. Well, the other things that cause prices to go up in both college and on the medical side is that after years of this habit of we can raise prices because that whole group of uninsured people aren't paying for their health insurance, or we've got enough money coming in from the funding and we could put in a new program over here in the psych department. And if we raise it's overall, it's a better educational atmosphere if we increase this department size. Over the years, that becomes a habit. There's, there's no force to say no. There's no negative to that positive input. So it doesn't need a reason to go up anymore. And you can see this in lots and lots of systems and ec economics, but these two are very, very clear. There's no reason not to raise prices because it's going to get paid somehow, which means that we've got some kind of a weird Frankenstein of capitalism and socialism kind of trying to stagger along together and the end result is it's going to fall down we have to redesign both of these systems for it to work forgiving the debt is is far worse than a band-aid uh it is it is like we're just going to erase this and make it not have happened what happens does that mean forever that school is free for everyone and by the way, as a side note, I'm not necessarily against that. It works well as a public institution for well, school up through K through 12. It keeps people literate. It gives them skills. But we I haven't really made a decision, yay or nay. If, you, if higher education was based on academic skills or technical skills, we treat it the way it's treated in Europe, for example. Right. Which was designed by you, the United States. Yes. Where if your skills lean towards let's say being a mechanic, then you go to technical school 
and the government pays for your technical school so that you can go and well the government and the industry together pay for your technical school so that you can go out and learn how to do you can learn how to do something that you can actually apply and have a job when you finish but the idea that i don't know i don't remember how far back we, when we started doing guaranteed student loans the issue is not just that loaning money it's guaranteed student loans promised a profit to sally may right no matter what they did there's no credit check there is no uh check to see if what you're buying is worth what you're paying for it you know if a private lender if i want to go buy a car and i go to usa and say i want to buy a car and i want to borrow the money from you usa looks up the value of that car and tells me how much they'll loan me based on what they if they have to foreclose on that car they have to repossess that car how much they could get for it. No, here's the problem. It's really hard to repossess a brain. We're here to, to take your education back. Please start coughing it up. But the point is that if you look at an education and say, how much is this worth in the economy right now? And you say, that's a reasonable price to pay for it. We'll loan you that much money because your income will be higher because you have that likely to be higher because you have that education. On the other hand, a lot of people are getting educations that they can't get jobs with. Uh, well, you can get a job with it, but you just can't get a job where you can pay off your student loan. Right. There's no cost-benefit analysis done on educations by the lender. The government doing it by itself is probably far more effective than Sally Mae, where Sally Mae was guaranteed a profit no matter who they loaned money to, so they would literally loan money to just about anybody. Yeah, I mean, um, this is a behavioral still, study. You could do this on rats. If you get a benefit to do this one thing, no matter what you do it or where you do it, guess what? Rats will do that thing. Well, so will people. So will corporations. So will Sally May. Yeah. Um, so a lot of money was loaned to people to get educations that they couldn't make a living with, and we have to do commercials. Yes, we have to play some commercials. This is a subject that could take easily take all of our time for the next four months and we still wouldn't cover the the largest part i mean maybe even the smallest part of it so it's a it's a vitally important area to be to continue conversation about to figure out what is the balance we should have between capitalism and socialism in education and in medicine it's the debate we've been having for decades but if we look at it based on rational understanding of economic consequences and benefits it seems to make a better decision making process but i could say that about almost anything including having babies going to the grocery store anyway which we have a question hanging out there from philip philip says top of the morning to you thank you philip that's very nice he he says could or would you guys address what i think is an oncoming economic crisis due to our federal overspending and the effects of the pandemic in lockdowns and paying people to stay at home. So that's the first part of it. I see countries around the world that are less prosperous or developed beginning to really feel the impact of the past year and a half. I'm concerned about higher inflation and quite possibly my employment in the future. Philip, thank you very much for this question. It's um, a lot of question. Yeah, but it's all interrelated to itself even though it doesn't seem like it. So the first thing is the concern uh, overspending on the federal level effects of the pandemic and lockdowns and paying people to stay home. So overspending on the federal level and paying people to stay at home kind of fit into one group there. Then lockdowns. So it's like governmental effects because of the pandemic on the economy. That's your concern. The government shut down the economy to some extent, large extent, by mandate saying, hey, we got to stop the spread. 
then went and spent a lot of money on stimulating the economy that it had shut down. What what are the future implications of that? That's that's how I'm interpreting that question. Then the next question is about, well, it's more about a concern. Countries that are less prosperous and developed beginning to really feel the impact. And then concern about higher inflation and his employment in the future. I'm going to tie it all together because it's really all the same thing. First off, we're concerned about the effect of the pandemic and all its implications on the global economy down to the individual scale, my own employment. When we see less prosperous nations that are really feeling the impact, the reason why they're feeling it is because they didn't have federal spending on their their accounts. This is this is preposterous in a non-emergency situation. You would never hear us say, let's have a bunch of government handouts when the economy is doing well. Uh, this is something that both major, even political schools of economics, the originators of these schools can agree on this. This is Milton Friedman and, and, uh, and Keynes, John Maynard Keynes. The, the, the left has taken after Keynes, the right's after uh, Friedman, um, because Friedman's like the government should stay out of the economy. It should just get out of the economy and stay out of the economy. And Keynes is, hey, in really important situations, the government needs to get some, get involved. That's kind of the in a nutshell theory behind them. The problem with that that is those theories aren't quite right, because Friedman says the government shouldn't involve be involved except in emergencies. That's the right wing side economist who was not really that right-wing. He was an economist. Keynes said that the government should pay back its debt during good economic positions. So the left says, Keynes says we're allowed to borrow as much as we want. Friedman said, don't borrow, just have a big cash pot that you use in the event of a disaster. Texas does that in the rainy day fund. So, But he also said that in the worst case scenario, when you're in a disaster and you don't have a rainy day fund, you need to borrow money. Because that's absolutely common sense. If, you're, if your house burns down and you don't have a bunch of savings and you can go get a mortgage, you should probably get another house. Hopefully not live in a tent. So if you have the ability to get the loan in an emergency, you should, you should take it. One of the problems with having the savings is it slows the economy down. Right. In other words, money that you put into savings to replace your house in case your house burns down is money you didn't spend in the economy that didn't create jobs, that didn't create people making things. And economies that have done that have become pretty stagnant, very stagnant, right. as a matter of fact. Just look at the savings rate in Japan. They've got a very slow growth rate, and, a, and because of that high savings rate, a high debt rate. The government, the government in Japan has offset the high savings rate of individuals by having a current debt owned by the public ratio of about 270% of its gross domestic product. We're at about 100%. So the government of Japan holds a lot more debt partially to provide the savings that the people of Japan have because it's the same number. You consider the debt of Japan in the bank account of a Japanese citizen as reserves to the citizen but debt to the country. So it slows things down. So when we see countries that are less prosperous, that are going through the same issue that everybody else is, that haven't had the stimulus, they... They're, they're just trying to deal with the economic impact of the other developed nations' demand fluctuations based on lockdowns. 
but they don't have like an insurance system, which is what our government has been acting as to back them up. One of the ways that you can look at this, and I just got the data and I was looking at it and thought it was interesting. Let's presume that the recession of 1920 was caused by the pandemic, the so-called 1918 flu, yeah. which is generally accepted to be probably true. It's a, it's a pretty accurate statement, yeah. That recession, and recession, by the way, is measured from top to bottom. When the, when the economy starts falling to where it hits bottom, that's the end of the official recession. I don't like to use that. I use recession from, from the top to where it recovers. But the official length of a recession is the period of time during which it falls. And the National Bureau of Economic Research just came out this week and said the recession we experienced last year was only two months long. It's pretty severe, but we got over it. We're getting over it. As a matter of fact, we've recovered from it by every definition, including our definition, by now. So in about a year, we recovered. In 1920, when the government didn't get involved and didn't throw a lot of money into the situation and didn't borrow a lot of money, the recession lasted 18 months. In other words, the economy, the market, and everything about it fell for eight for a year and a half and it took about a decade to recover now think about all the jobs that were lost and all the taxes that weren't collected because of it and all the pain and suffering and foreclosures and everything else that went on in the 1920s as a result the early 1920s and you realize that all that money that was borrowed and pumped into the economy and given to people who weren't working apparently has sent a jolt through the economy that has caused us to recover ever so much quicker. It's an experiment. Yeah. We tried it. We've tried it in the past. We tried it in 1929. We tried it in 1920 to see what we could do to get ahead of the system and not support the economy. And it didn't work particularly well. Now, we've done the complete opposite this time around, and we really won't know till the end for a decade or so how it worked out. Right. So but I think it's working pretty well so far. From the federal standpoint, when we look at it and we say, right, what what is the purpose of a government? Well, the number one purpose of the government is to protect its own people, protect it from natural disasters, protect it from outside invasion, and to protect their interests abroad. That makes sense. And I think we can all agree on that. This is a natural disaster. This is why we have FEMA. So the government spending here is in essence insurance money. Insurance money is inflationary at the small level and at the big level. If you just inherited a bunch of money through insurance that you're not used to, you're going to spend it quicker than you usually would. Uh, that's just backed up by study after study. Same's kind of true at the, at the mass level. I mean, if you look at the inflation rates around New Orleans after Katrina, not just because of shortages, but also because a lot more insurance money was hitting the area, uh, you mean, beer prices doubled in a very short period of time there. And it isn't because it's hard to make harder to make beer. It's just there was more money available. You can see this in places like San Francisco where the income goes up. Well, this one time or few times insurance payment that we've gotten from stimulus plans and from un uh, unemployment uh, payments going out from the federal level, that all amounts to the same thing. And we actually have to cover this more next hour because we haven't really touched it enough. The, Philip sent a kind of a complicated series of questions and concerns that kind of boil down to uh, w what is the long term that we should be expecting to the health of the economy based on the spending at the federal level, uh, the forced lockdowns, the 
ongoing and then stopping payments of unemployment, additional insurance to things. And we, we spent a chunk of the last hour talking about how the stimulus actually did a, a lot of good for the economy. The long-term implication of this is still out there. We haven't touched that yet. But the short term of it is it did something fantastic. It, it made our downturn, our recession from the pandemic be one month long. We referred back to 1920 when the the flu of the, the Spanish flu was the presumably the cause of that recession. And it lasted much longer. It didn't have any stimulus from the government. There was no such thing as unemployment insurance at the time. There certainly wasn't long-term care benefits and our health health situation was much worse. So there's a lot of other variables in there. But something that we can see across the world today is that countries that didn't have the kind of federal backup, kind of insurance money for the disaster are struggling hard right now. Very hard. Because it's not like it didn't, they didn't have the same things happen there. They just didn't have the federal backup. Now, where did we get that money? Where, where did the United States get the money to flush into the system to give us the stimulus and to cause the houses to stop being foreclosed on and to start, cause people to not be evicted for rent? And where's this money coming from? What is the, the PPP loans, the stimulus checks that people got? Well, it came from borrowing. And we spent a chunk of the first part of the hour talking about the strangeness of how low the interest rates are right now at the, at the treasury level. Interest rates are falling uh, and, and have been falling for, for weeks. We're back down to where we were in the fall of last year. And this is something we mentioned in the newsletter, that if you missed refinancing back when rates were below 3%, well, they're back there again. So... No, you need to have a good credit to get that refinance. And that's an important factor that everybody needs to be looking at is that during this big boom for refinancing, we didn't see a lot of uh, low-income people getting refinanced. In fact, it's really high-income, very, very high-credit score people are the ones that drove that mortgage market. So what was the impact? What What is what is the long term on this? So we can see that unemployment's recovering so that there's a lot more, well, I should say employment's recovering, unemployment's de-recovering um, in that we're putting people back to work. Businesses are starting back up. There's, an, there's a mismatch there and that a lot of the jobs that are being looked for aren't the jobs that are available and vice versa. But there's as many jobs available as people looking for jobs at this point. This is this is phenomenal because if you look back at other times in history where there wasn't this kind of an insurance backup, and I'm referring to the government as insurance in this case, you see a much, much longer protracted, more painful recovery. So we had this government spending based on borrowing, based on borrowing that other people in the world and ourselves deemed was a safe bet. We were loaning money to the government. That's where they get it. This is something... I think most people lose track of this. The vast majority, not just the majority, but the vast majority of the debt that the U.S. government owes is owed to the American people. They're the ones that hold those bonds. There are there's a lot of other countries that also own bonds, but we're talking about a third of the overall debt. The rest of it belongs to us. We're the ones that think the government's safe enough to keep loaning it money, and we think it's safe enough enough that we're even willing to take lower and lower interest rates to do it. So 
What that means is that the people that are loaning this money believe that they're going to get the money back, even though that the rate that they're getting is below that of inflation. And you're muted. Another way of explaining that that I like is if you go to the bank and you try to get a loan and you have too much debt outstanding, you don't think you're going to be at some point be able to pay it back, or they're going to have to write down some of the debt, which is a form of inflation, they won't make you a loan. And if you believe that the marketplace is, if you like we do, and we believe that the capitalist marketplace is long-term quite intelligent, the collective wisdom of all the people who are buying bonds, for example, is a quite intelligent net result. Then you look at the fact that the people who are loaning money to the United States for 10 years are charging 1.279% per year to loan that money to the United States. And knowing that inflation is going to be less than that, going to be more than that, I mean. With, with a great deal of confidence. They know they're going to lose money on the loan. They think the United States credit is so good that they'll loan money to the United States for 30 years. A 30-year bond is below 2%. Again, a that's, lot of people we look back 50 loaning, years, that's, that's way below the last 50-year average inflation rate. A lot of people, internationally and domestically, are loaning money to the United States for 30 years or 10 years or 20 years at rates below inflation. So the collective wisdom of the world is we didn't borrow too much money and we're going to pay it back. And there's another, can I, can I, can I go on? Yeah, I've got one more thing to add to this too. Go ahead. Okay. If we allow the tax code to just run without messing with it, other than the 15% minimum tax that President Biden has proposed, which I think is a good idea for corporations, we will pay this debt back because in the end of 2025, tax rates go for individuals go back up to where they were. The corporate tax rate stays at 21%, but if we have a 15% minimum tax, in other words, no matter how many tax write-offs a company has, if it reports profits... you got to pay 15%. That's the flat bottom. got to pay a minimum of 15%. You, you figure all that together. If we don't borrow Just, a lot more money... I, I, I have to throw this feature. in real quick. Sure. Sorry. I, I said it was the flat bottom, which is only allowed to be said about boats or tax rates. Please do not refer to any of your colleagues or significant others with that terminology. Okay, now back to you. Flat bottom? Work. Yes. Now don't, don't call me that. What? I just said... I had an egg. I heard, I heard reference to an egg with a flat bottom the other day. Mm. See? Otherwise, it Insulting. would roll around. So the point is, by, 20, by the end of 2025, our economy should have recovered very nicely. It should be on a big roll. And if somewhere along the way we allow taxes to rise... Which it's set to do in 2025... Which is which is set to do under the Trump Tax Act, which was called something Economic Recovery Act or no. something. It's always tax, called something Tax weird. Cuts and Jobs Act. Oh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will raise taxes, which is kind of backwards. In to the end of twenty twenty five, by the end of the twenty twenties, we'll probably be running a surplus and be paying back the debt. So, on the other hand, on the other hand, this debt currently is financed at rates well below inflation. So people are actually paying the United States. To loan, to loan the money, to loan the United States money. So no. I don't think there's any immediate threat from the debt. Right. So that goes on to the next question. And this is the probably the biggest concern. This is the, what, what Philip wrapped up the questions with, is I'm concerned about higher inflation and quite possibly my employment in the future. So we just covered what economists like to say in aggregate. And it just means across the board averages, which are extremely good at looking at the big picture and very uncomfortable when you look at at a, at a micro level, at a human level, rather than the average of all these people. The truth is that 
this year we're going to see a spike in, in inflation. We've already s beginning to see it. Uh, it's going to be a big one. Uh, and it's the same kind of spike in inflation that we saw at Katrina around New Orleans. Every natural disaster has this happen. This is why we have price gouging rules because uh, plywood shouldn't go up by 300% because there's a hurricane there, except that it does because you've got to get the plywood out there somehow. Well, the government says you can't overly profit from this stuff. When there's a disaster that's this ba bad across the board, there's going to be some over-profiting, some gouging. But the reality is that the supply chain is all messed up. The people that generally have been manufacturing for us at this point are on again, off again in lockdown in China. This is something that's hard to cover because the United States and China are at so at odds on so many things right now. But it's still going on. There are rolling lockdowns taking place across China constantly right now. Major metropolitan centers just getting shut down. And we're not tracking that here very well as, as far as Western culture goes. We're not looking over there and saying what factories are open today. We've got these great figures where we're tracking how many rigs are open for fracking and, and how many new rigs are being made manufacturing facilities in china are this big gray area that's really hard to know even if you're the one whose factory is being shut down you may not find out about it for a week you just the numbers start looking weird and you go what's going on and you call and nobody answers the phone at your own factory so supply chain issues are going to continue until enough of the world is is immune or vaccinated so just keep that in mind that we're going to have continuations of spikes of, of inflation. The reason why we're not concerned long term about inflation is because we're seeing productivity growth that is so completely off the charts that there's no real good comparison era except for right after the GI Bill hitting after World War II. We're seeing people getting better automating doing more with software, doing more with equipment than they've ever done before. When that happens, that is, that's the kryptonite to inflation. If you can make more things for the same amount of money, then it's really hard to charge more money for it, especially if you're in competition with other people that are doing the same thing. The things that have kept inflation low for the last decade and a half is that if you raised your prices, somebody else in the world would come up with a lower price for the same product. Now, somebody else in the world was usually in China, but not always. So if you raise the price on your rubber boat or your dinghy, um, then somebody in China would say, hey, we can sell it for, this, for less. And it's the same product because it's made at the same manufacturing facility. That has been the, the kryptonite to inflation till now. Well, now we have these supply chain issues that are causing these instant inflation hikes. Also, remarkably, instant deflation hikes. There's places where you really can't sell certain items because you can't send it to the place that normally would be buying it. We see this in automobiles right now. The chips are coming out. It's showing, slowing down production. We look at unemployment right now. Uh, this is something we also mentioned in the newsletter. We had a jump in people, additional people seeking unemployment protection, unemployment insurance, about 41,000 people. And when you dig into that, those are people that are not able to work 
in the auto industry because the chips aren't there for them to be working. So the plants are shut down. So they're seeking unemployment insurance. Is that temporary? Chips are down. Chips are down. Yep. Um, some people have them on their shoulders, which is just as bad. When the chips are down, uh, these folks got laid off. And there's another big article in the Wall Street Journal that some of these people won't have a job when the chips come back. Not because the companies are going to be unprofitable, but because of what we mentioned last hour, many, many, many jobs are switching over from internal combustion to electric and battery at Ford, at General Motor, at all of the major manufacturing facilities for automobiles that support those companies. That these experts, these engineers that are highly skilled at the internal combustion engine about getting the absolute most gas mileage out of these minor explosions that happen at high speed aren't going to have a job when they come back for after the chips. They're retiring early. They're getting buyouts. They're getting laid off with big packages. This is something that's going to continue for a while because... Technology is being replaced by another technology. This happened in televisions. Curtis Mathis went away. It was a big deal. I mean, they made furniture that was also a TV. When you have, you have to have pallbearers for your for, for your television. That's a it's a statement about where you were at the time. You have to have six people come to carry your television in using poles and um and you could place you know, a whole, your whole dinner well set across the top of the television uh and the screen was 12 inches across so little hyperbole in there little hyperbole but th- this is what we're seeing so employment and inf- inflation we see as a short term thing these these supply chains will get worked out and will get more efficient so the long term is we're likely to go back to things being cheaper year after year because of the productivity gains Now comes the last and maybe most important concern that Philip raised, and I'd really like your input on this too because I'm doing a soliloquy rather than a dialogue here. But you're doing a good soliloquy. Thank you. Is that he's concerned about employment in the future, personally and for people that he knows. And the reality of that, and I'll just touch on it briefly and then hand it over to you, is that your employment will not be in jeopardy if you train yourself to train yourself. If you're willing to continue to learn new things, your employment will not be in jeopardy. If you're willing to continue to invest in your own knowledge and your own skill set, no matter what happens to technology, you can convert with it and likely to a better position in the future. That's hard when you're looking at it and saying, my job may be gone. But if you're truly concerned, start looking at what you can learn that will guide you to the next steps after whatever it is that you're doing is no longer there. It's it's that's vital and it doesn't matter what piece of what place in history you are, that's true. Invest in yourself and in your own knowledge and you'll have the ability to retool and move on to the next step to to evolve if you will. My mother-in-law, my wife's mother, who died 20 years ago, had a sign that she had up in her on her wall that we still have up on the wall. The the one that said no roller skating on the ceilings? No, not that one. Not no. that one. Oh, okay. It said, look awake. You could be replaced by a button. And she was talking about it because she collected buttons, but that's beside the point. You could, If you can be replaced by a button, your job is in danger. And that's something to consider. to consider. If you're doing something that's boring and repetitive, eventually a computer will come along to do your job. 
If you're doing something that requires thinking and innovation, computers don't do that very well. As a matter of fact, they do that terribly. Right. So as far as job, and the other side of it is from a, Jake was talking about from a very practical point of view, and I'm talking about a very practical point of view. If you're in a boring, terrible job, you should move before you're laid off anyway. <laughs> you should be educating yourself and moving on to something else. And people are doing that, by the way, across the country. Yeah, we're seeing that across the numbers. But net in the economy, changes in, in, in technology, improvements in technology don't decrease jobs. They increase jobs. They increase better paying jobs. The economy, this economy that we have in the United States, because it's not centrally controlled, does a lot of things that other economies don't do. For example... There was a push to raise the minimum wage a couple of years ago to $15, and it was resisted terribly and resisted forcibly. And I don't know whether it was good or bad that it was resisted. We raised the federal official minimum wage to $15. De facto, you can't hire anybody for less than $15 an hour at this point. So the marketplace has taken this into its own hands and raised the minimum wage effectively to $15. McDonald's is paying $15 an hour for hamburger flippers. Amazon is paying $15 an hour starting wages. Walmart is paying $15 an hour starting wages. And the, that, the marketplace a lot of, tends to take care of itself. A lot of people say, well, that's political moves. No, it's just hard to hire anybody that's quality if you pay less than that. It's just really, really hard to find anybody that will work for less than that at this point. So this is a, this is a factor of how the marketplace fixes this. And, and I've got a wrap up for this that I think will encapsulate all of it. How do you protect yourself against inflation? How do you protect yourself against your job going away? How do you protect yourself against technology shifts? And there's one way that throughout history has worked, at least in places that have personal property rights, and that's ownership. I know this seems like a very basic concept, and it is. Inflation, it's historically best counterpart it's it, it's best thing that keeps up with it is owning companies that have to evolve with inflation that have to raise their prices with inflation it isn't gold you can look at gold and inflation and it's all over the charts there's no there's no easy answer i'll just buy gold and that'll hedge me against it because it's got its own volatility the i mean we we are uh, like five percent of the overall market in gold at this point when you look at how much uh, India and China buy and sell gold. So our inflation is irrelevant to gold's prices at this point when that much demand is coming from other places. So what is it? It's ownership in in the economy, in the stock market, in the bond market, in, uh, in real estate that is not just raw land that has some kind of uh, built-in value to it. A house, as long as you're keeping the house up, your rent should go up with inflation. Uh, your stock prices historically have gone up with a certain amount of gains on top of inflation. So ownership is the way you preserve yourself. And long term, what you should be trying to do to protect your own em employment is to reach financial independence. And I, I know a lot of people scoff at this. This is something that it. we were talking about this before the program, that that's not possible it's out of reach for my generation whatever your generation is and this is because every generation's got a headline baby boomers financial independence out of uh, generation x financial independence out of reach it's it's to make you scared and read the article the reality is that 
we see proof that that is not true every day, every day, because we, we've got clients that are not, they were not some kind of instant millionaire. They didn't get into some startup and blow up and found some major company and now are in orbit over the planet. They had a job like other people had jobs, but they had a disciplined approach to investing in ownership and in their own potential. They invested in their own knowledge and they invested in their own ownership. And they did it consistently with relatively small amounts of money that grew with them over the years. And they've reached financial independence. It's hard, but that's really it. If you've got to take ownership of yourself, your own capabilities, increase them and improve them as much as you can and take ownership in the economy around you. And that, while it's long-term and it certainly wouldn't help you in a short-term emergency, the long term is that's that is the way to alleviate the concerns that you have here is invest in yourself and invest in your future. Live below your standard of living. Yeah. Don't spend more than you make. Keep savings on hand. Invest for the long term in both your own brain and in your portfolio. And when I say the marketplace, I'm not limiting it to the stock market. That would be absurd. There's so much in the marketplace, including your own employment. Uh, and the more ownership you take in that, the more safety you have against these things that that are in the email about the concern. What, what the government does, if you are in high demand, it really doesn't matter because you're still going to be in high demand. Put yourself in high demand. And that's the alleviation. And I know, you know, we're supposed to be finance and talk to you about, well, if you invest in this company right here and do these things, these simple 10 steps will... No, it's simpler than that. It doesn't go in a step order. You've got to invest in yourself and in your future. That's it. Treat yourself like you need to support yourself in the future. And unfortunately, that simple concept is not well taught. We're about out of time. You are listening to The Personal Wealth Coach, which is not only the name of the radio program, it's also the name of the SEC Registered Investment Advisory Firm in Salado, Texas. And we do give fiduciary investment advice, management, and wealth management to people who are at or near financial independence. And if you'd like to contact us off the air, we do have voicemail on the weekends, live, real live people, not a phone tree answering the phone during the week at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that locally at 254, well, I already said that, uh, toll free, Long, 1-800. Toll free on your landline. 914-7526, it's the 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got radio programs going back lots of years. We've got newsletters going back lots of years. Check it out. See what we said before and after. Um, you can contact us directly through the contact form. Our podcasts are available anywhere. You can email us at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. We do read those things. Thank you very much for listening. You guys have a fantastic rest of your week.